Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Josh Berger. And I'm Brian Lomax. And on today's episode, we feature a conversation with Howard Bryant. Howard Bryant is an award-winning author and journalist who has been a senior writer for ESPN since 2007. Although he writes about a number of sports and topics within sport, he is an astute observer of tennis and he, is, he always brings a unique perspective with his analysis of matches and issues within the game. Howard also plays tennis and therefore has firsthand knowledge of how difficult the sport is mentally. As a professional observer of the sport, he's uniquely qualified to discuss the mental and emotional challenges that tennis players face. This conversation runs the gamut from mental toughness to mental health. We're sure you're going to enjoy it. So with that, here's our conversation with Howard Bryant. Howard Bryant, welcome to the Tennis IQ podcast. Really excited to have you here today. It's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, as we do with all of our guests, uh, we would love to hear about, you know, how you got started in tennis. You know, you're a, not only are you a journalist and a writer, uh, but you also play tennis. So, you know, you have some experiential, uh, you know, perspectives on the game. And, um, you know, we'd love to hear about how you got involved in the sport of tennis and also how you got involved with covering the sport and, yeah. and commentating on it. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. I think it's um, it's really you know between tennis and baseball, really two of my, my just my favorite sports, um, and one of the reasons why I really enjoy tennis so much is because in doing this as a as a journalist, it's it is a doer's sport. And you know, you look at a game like football. Football is a watcher sport. There are very few. 50 year olds that are out there playing football and it's a game that you sit and watch tennis you know when you start playing people tell you you can play this game for the rest of your life you can play it your entire life and and you really can between this and basketball maybe those are the two sports really where and, and golf of course as well but there are very few really active physical sports that people both watch and do when you go to a tennis tournament you can pretty much tell that a lot of the people that are there are players and they go there dressed in their gear. You can tell that they that they are in a league somewhere, that they have some experience. It's not the same thing, obviously, as watching a major, but it is it's a different experience. And for me, I was a tennis fan as a kid, really young. I love the game, obviously. Billie Jean King, Arthur Ashe. I remember growing up in Boston, um, watching the Boston Lobsters on Channel Two. And uh, world team tennis way back in the day, and when my family we moved down to the South Shore, down into to Plymouth, um, we all had rackets, but nobody played because we didn't have lessons. It's not a tennis is not really a pickup sport. I mean, you can bat the ball around, but you have to learn. You have to be taught how to do this. And so I was way more of a watcher than a player. I mean, we would hit the ball around in between playing basketball games, but I was a huge. Uh, Ivan Lendl fan. He was my guy back in the in the early '80s and the mid '80s, and so so as he suffered not being able to win Wimbledon, I suffered that he was not able to win Wimbledon. However, his uh, his French Open in '84 was really one of my favorite moments watching as a kid uh, to see him come back from two sets down against McEnroe. That was really exciting for me. And one of the reasons people always say to me, "How could you like Lendl? He was so..." mechanical and robotic and boring and how could he be your favorite it was actually out of compassion because i remember well one i I loved how he served and the other reason was i remember there was a tournament i think it might have been wimbledon but i remember in his post-match his post-defeat speech 
he had said something along the lines of, one of these days, it would be nice if the crowd rooted for me. And that was like, wow, you know, that was, that was kind of heartbreaking. And of course, today you see the same thing with, you know, with Djokovic and some of the other guys now, you can tell the crowds are so, um, you know, they like who they like. And that kind of got me into, that got me into, into, uh, to watching the game. And obviously it was such a, a thing back on CBS, U.S. Open, after football, September, you could just, it was a ritual, Pat Summerall on the call, you just remember all of it. And so, and then I sort of fell out. I mean, once again, you play what's around you and nobody played. And so I played, you know, huge basketball fan, huge softball fan, did a lot of that stuff. And it really wasn't until I moved out to Western Mass. I moved out here in 2007 and I didn't know anyone. And so there was no more softball. There was maybe a pickup basketball game I was trying to find. And then, of course, my body was like, yeah, you're done with basketball. <laughs> there'll, there'll be no more basketball. I would play basketball on a, up in Shelburne Falls on Tuesday nights. And by Saturday, I was still dragging. I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> I, think, I think it's time. I, I, it's time to listen. And so with nothing to do, there were, you know, there were some guys in my, in my town in Ashfield who were playing tennis. And they needed a fourth. And I was like, I haven't swung a racket at all since I was 11 or 12 or 13 years old. And I've never had lessons. I was 40. And I started to play because I just needed to stay fit. I needed to compete. I wanted to do something. And so I just started to devour, uh, you know, just devour YouTube videos. And then, of course, coming out here and meeting Mike Calendo. Mike was one of the first guys to give me a lesson. And that was the first tennis lesson I'd ever had. And um, that was sort of amazing. And, um, and then the combination between the two was that I, I had lost interest in, in tennis in a lot of ways on the professional side because I thought the game, I thought the game had gotten too far out of balance, especially in the mid-90s. Um, mid-90s grass, it was just big, huge servers, you know, Goran, Sampras, and you know, I mean, those guys just hit the ball so hard, even even if, you know, they just hit the ball way too, in a, too big. And I, and I love returners. So Agassi was sort of the guy that I followed because I like defense. I, I, I like returners. And so, and then I started to fall out, you know, again, I still paid attention to the women's game, but I, I started to lose, I don't want to say I lost interest, but I'm a, I am a, I'm a rivalries guy and I'm a bird magic guy. I'm a, you know, Georgetown, St. John's and Celtics Lakers and all that stuff. And so I thought that Federer was simply just too good. He reminded me of Jordan. He reminded me of Tiger. And said, you know, and I, I don't really love the sport when one person has the floor. And then Rafa came along and then I was hooked again. And Nadal, Federer, like most people, there's nothing revelatory about this. Those two really brought me back into the game. And then I started to watch again and really started to play and started to get really deeply involved in it and um and you know just started to really enjoy the game and so when my contract was up at espn they wanted to renew it and they said hey what do you want to do and what do you is there anything you want to do in your new contract and i said yeah i want to cover tennis 
And they said, well, great. Why don't we put all four majors in your contract? I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> so all of a sudden, here I am at the U.S. Open. I never got to go to Australia, though, because the rating the, is an overnight tournament. And so the numbers ne never really did great. And I didn't demand it. And so now I'm regretting that I didn't say, hey, man, it's in my contract. I, I need to go to Melbourne. So I've never been there. But yeah, there I was in, in New York and Indian Wells and and Washington and Wimbledon and and uh, and Roland Garros. So the the um, so suddenly the professional and the personal merged at the exact same time that I was really digging in and sort of playing four days a week and five days a week, and it was great. Yeah, that's a great great story and great introduction to you know how you got into this. You brought up Federer and Nadal. You know, a couple of weeks ago when we spoke, we talked a little bit about the concept of locker room power, certainly something that Federer had a ton of prior to Nadal's emergence, really in the end of 04, beginning of 05. Um, give me your perspective on on how that played out, maybe even in Roger's mind from what you've observed, you know, getting this young rival who, you know, on the face of it, doesn't have as good of a serve. Forehand is different, but good. Uh, backhand is, you know, okay for for a pro backhand, um, but yet fights like no one has ever really fought in the game of tennis. How how, how did you? What what really attracted you to that specific rivalry? Well, it's funny because I it really is one of those things where I think that for me. If I remember correctly, it was the 07-08 Wimbledon finals. Obviously, the 08 final is the is the big one. Yeah. And I remember watching the 08 match throughout the entire match, just thinking, can he slay the beast? Can you do this? Can you do you have enough belief in your game? And then of course, you know, as as the legend would grow, of course, Rafa's got incredible belief in his game, even though he has extreme doubts about and he doesn't walk around as though he expects success all the time, even though he works toward it. It's a very interesting psychological thing for him. But I think what really drew me to that matchup was the, the visceral physicality and the contrast of both. It always bothered me that people would look at Roger and say he was so elegant. Um, and he is an elegant player, and he is a beautiful player, and he has always been. And, and you look at him, and you you notice all of the strokes. There's not a single A minus stroke Roger has. Even if you want to pick on his backhand with Rob, he's still got an A plus backhand. He's got a great backhand. And so, the thing that I really enjoyed about it was the fact that Roger could fight. I mean, that is the thing that I love about Federer when you watch him play is he may make it look easy. He may have all kinds of plush strokes. He may be able to do all of the different things with an outstanding, staggering amount of ease. But boy, you put Roger in a fight and he doesn't blink um, back then. And, you know, it, that's why it would be the contrast would be so interesting when he would fight Djokovic later on that he would blink against Novak and, you know, lose when winning, which you don't see against virtually any other opponent. And with Nadal, what I loved about that matchup was the fact that you're right. Early on, when you watched Nadal, I mean, his backhand was defensive. He wasn't really trying to push. He never tried to push through the court with it. It was always looping. It was hitting the service line. 
his forehand was great, but even then he was he wore you down. He was a fighter. He was you know that that type of of attack was relentless but not quick. They you know the 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 Nadal approach had always been to go out and take your legs out, outlast you. You want to do this for two hours, great. You want to do it for three, great. You want to do it for five, I'll still be here. Whereas you watch Roger, Roger's quick strike tennis. Roger's here to come in and take you out really, really quickly. And so I love the fact that the way that those two would go at each other, it really was a contrast in styles. Both were offensive players, but they went about their offense very, very differently. And so I really enjoyed that. It's it's funny that you mentioned that that match, that, that Nadal-Federer match, because I, I would say in many ways that's actually what hooked me to tennis too. Yeah. Um, I was a teenager you know, getting into playing tournaments, you know, playing a high school tennis as well. And I think that match actually had a big impact on me as well. Um, you, you mentioned some of the, the greats from other sports. You mentioned um, Larry Bird, Mad, um, Magic Johnson. You mentioned uh, Michael Jordan. Who would you say are some of the, the players, whether it's tennis or other sports that have really exemplified mental toughness and, you know, really being as strong as possible on the mental side of the game? Well, I, I think I, I love these types of conversations because they they allow you to stretch out and talk about the humanity that comes with the game, that they are people. As Joe Torre used to tell me all the time, the game has a beating heart. The sport, you have to remember the beating heart of the game. And, you know, you always made the distinctions between the physical errors and the mental errors. And you can, and, and that's the thing with baseball. Baseball and tennis are very, very similar in that in a lot of ways, the game is slow enough for you to think it through. And then when it's fast, it's really fast. So there's plenty of mental time, so much time for you to think about what you have to do. In between serves, you are thinking the game. You have, the game is completely, it's not, it's not basketball, which is kinetic and it just keeps going and going and going. And there's some, there's something you have to react to in, in base, in basketball at all times. So there's a difference between a ground ball, you know, coming to you and then you don't quite make the play and you chuck it wild and not remembering how many outs there were. I mean, that's the physical error versus the mental error. Just as you know, you know, when you know, you've got a plan in your serve, you've got a plan in your service games and you come back and then you start to break away from that plan and you know exactly why you did it, you know, and you guys know this way better than I do, that second guess in between the shot. Here's what I said I was going to do. Why did I do that? Which is the reason why they're always pointing in the other direction. About Here's what I, I, I knew that this was what I was supposed to do. So when I think about the, the, the beating heart of the sport, I always think about guys, Joe Montana immediately comes to mind in terms of somebody who, there, there are different ways to have mental toughness, in my opinion. There's, there's the guy who knows he's in for a fight and is completely willing to fight you on those terms until one of you loses, until, one of, you know, until, the, until the contest is over. Those, those guys, like the Bill Parcells approach. And then there's the other approach, which is, I am going to believe in this style of play. And I'm going to continue this style of play with the complete belief that eventually my style of play will win. And that takes a lot of toughness because what that requires is you to believe in your system no matter what is happening at that moment. You might be losing 
20 to nothing, and you might be down 15, but we're still going to play this style. And ultimately, we're going to get there. And that's what you see a lot with a guy like Nadal as well. He plays his game with the belief that eventually his game is going to get the result he needs to get. And there are, you know, you see that with Brady as well. With Brady, it's a little, you know, Tom Brady, it's a little bit different in that with him, his reaction to the situation, it's like you, you've heard athletes say the game slows down. And, and for him, it is very, very similar. If you go back and look at the AFC title game, when the Patriots went into Kansas City and, and, and beat the Chiefs, a game they had no business winning. They essentially threw to two guys the entire game, the entire second half. They threw to Gronk and they threw to Edelman. Same side of the field. They didn't even move the guys. They weren't moving around. They weren't in motion. It was, if you're watching it on TV, top of the screen, here it goes. And this, it made Tony Romo's career. He's like, they're going to go right here. Here's the play. And for Brady to be able to have that, the, the, the mental toughness to execute that I'm, I'm, you know, and it's also just practice as well, that, that maybe it doesn't require as much mental toughness as it is the reps that it took for you to know that this is the actual play. This is the throw. This is the belief. You know, I always wondered about what is, is, you know, where belief comes from. Does belief simply come from the, the number of times you've done this in practice? I'm just going to do what I do. And I, and I know how to do this because I've done it so many times. Or does it come from, you know, does it come from a recognition of the situation and a desire to overcome that individual situation? Which is why you see some players play really, really well against the top competition. And then they go in in the first round and go get beat because they're not totally locked in. I remember one time I was talking with Reggie Jackson um, when A-Rod first came to the Yankees. And I remember talking about how Reggie had essentially ruined the world for, for, for Yankee players, like for free agents that come in. I said, no one's going to be able to match what you did. You came in, you hit three home runs off three swings, off three different pitchers in the biggest game that city has had since 1962. You brought the Yankee dynasty back. And no one's ever going to do that again. Because the circumstances are never going to be the way you, you know, the circumstances that you entered, especially with the year you had, with all that tumult. And so, what can, if you're Alex Rodriguez and you've come to town with this $250 million contract and there's the expectations that you're supposed to surpass Derek Jeter and coexist and, and bring this team to a championship. And at the time they hadn't won yet, this was before 09. And, I, and, and Reggie said to me, do you know the difference between A-Rod and me? He says, when I was at bat in those moments, I used to tell myself, forget everything. All the strikeouts, the failure, but forget everything. All you have to do is click it right here. Right here, right now. And they'll remember you for the rest of your life. And he said, when A-Rod goes to bat... A-Rod is thinking, what are they going to say if I strike out? What's the media going to say if I fail? What's, what's, what's the headline tomorrow? What are the fans going to say? So I have to get this done right now. And he's like, it's a totally different mentality. He goes, I didn't think about it. All I said was, I could strike out 500 times in a row, but if I get it right here, this is all they're going to remember. Totally different approaches.
And I think you just sort of spelled out the dilemma that many tennis players have, especially those coming up through the junior ranks who are going through college recruiting, who are perhaps even somewhat mentally tortured by their UTR and which schools they want to play for, the rankings and the points, etc. And can you put that aside to be in that moment, such as Reggie Jackson was, you know, and that's, it's, as you said, baseball and, and, and tennis are, are very similar. Not only do you have that pitching, hitting, serving, receiving parallel, but correct me if I'm wrong, Howard, I think you tweeted recently another thing that you like between the two sports is that you have to finish yeah. in both. 100%. Right? There's no clock that you can just sort of no. run it out and, and yeah, I can coast. play four corners and just pass the ball around or, you know, or if, if we get this first down, we don't have to run any more plays. Baseball and tennis... If you don't get the final out, you lose. That's it. No matter what the score is, I mean, doesn't make a difference what the circumstance is. You could be down 200 to nothing. If you do not record the final out, you will have eventually lost 201 to 200 or whatever it is. You will have lost. And the same is true for tennis. It, you have to give the other player their chance. You have to you have to defeat the other player. And that's the other piece of this that I really enjoy that people don't talk that much about in terms of the mental toughness of the game. When they say, oh, well, you know, it's always different and very difficult serving out a match or serving out a set. You know, that, that service game is very different. And yes, we do focus on that, and that deserves focus. But the other piece of this, which is extremely important, and I tell myself that when I'm playing my meager matches out around the corner, can you finish me? Defensively, do you have what it takes to finish me? And... That gives you a little bit more confidence, especially if you believe in your return. And if you believe, which is I was watching the Djokovic Kyrgios match, and it was one of the big it, it was going to be the difference in the match. That you know, you can talk about Kyrgios' serve and you can talk about Djokovic's defense. The difference is going to come down on return. How much pressure can Kyrgios put on Djokovic's return? On Djokovic's serve. How much return pressure is he going to put on? And I believe I counted up, I believe there were, I think, 10 or 11, maybe more, service games, Djokovic service games that were love games or 15 games. He just gave that away. I mean, but then again, Kyrgios is returning at 16% for his career. So you try to tell yourself, okay, where is there an opening? And anybody who's ever played tennis knows this. If you're working that hard for your points on serve, eventually you're a dead man. It doesn't make a difference. I mean, if you're going to do the Federer-Isner thing and have a 35-second hold, okay, that's one thing. Or if you can do the Nadal thing where you back up your serve so well with your second shot that you control the point and you can still hold it 89%, great. But if you're the one out there who's constantly at 30, constantly at 40, constantly at... Eventually it breaks. Eventually it cracks. And so the, the, the real key, toughness-wise... That's why I love Isner. I mean, I, you know, I do not love Isner as a person. We do not get along. That's another story for another day. But when you watch him, there is virtually nobody in the game more committed to doing what he does best. He's a tough dude. And because he knows this is how I play. This is how I win. And to be able to stick to that throughout is, is really fascinating. I was at a match at Indian Wells. Remember which year it was. And Djokovic just took him apart. I mean, it was just, it was masterful. And 
and it, he took them apart easily. And I remember the service game. If I remember the numbers correctly. Isner came in 143, 141, 139, 141, and Djokovic broke him at love. And Isner said after the game, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, and you give both of those guys credit because they are so locked into what they're doing, to their playing to their strength. But it was just an amazing moment. Reminds me actually of a match just a couple of days ago that Brian and I were actually at in person in in Newport the the new the ATP two fifty when oh, we you're watched. Oh, Newport. Mm-hmm. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. We watched uh, Andy Murray play. Um, play against Sam Query. Oh, Sam the Query, 6-2-6 obviously. Love match. Yikes. Exactly, exactly. Six two six love. And you know, I don't think Query was having his best serving day, but at one point at what point he, he sort of said, you know, what am I supposed to do? What here? am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Murray's playing very consistently. Well, I think he made about eighty five percent first serves in that first set. So it's you know, it's a matter of how you play the game and really understanding what, what you do well out there and well, manipulate and where, that. Yeah. And where where is the pressure? It's like what, what um, Agassi used to say. You want to beat a big server? Return. And it's one of my favorite matches was at the U.S. Open was Isner against Cole Schreiber, one of my favorite players to watch, even though he's got a one-hander. Um, and Cole Schreiber just took – I mean, he won the match in five sets, so I don't think you could say he, he took Isner apart. But to handle that serve at five foot ten, to take it as early as he did, to just really fight every point – the way he did, you have to remind yourself. It's like getting dunked on. Like if you get posterized or something, it's still just two points. You have to tell yourself it's just two points. So when John Isner aces you, it's still just a point. It doesn't make a difference if it's a drop shot. It doesn't make a difference if it's a winner it's just a, or an ace. It's just a point. However, that's really hard to do when you're getting beat that way. And when you know when you go up against him, you've got no chance on his serve. Or you believe if, if he breaks just once, this match is over or the set is over. So it's 100% true. And I, I feel for somebody like Murray, when you're watching Murray, he's easily in the top five greatest returners of all time. But because of his injuries now, Andy Murray before the injuries for his career was breaking at 31, 32%, which is unbelievable. I mean, that's top level. That's Djokovic, Nadal territory, you know, Agassi territory. Now with his hip, he's breaking around 22%, which is why Isner beat him at Wimbledon, because that drop-off, that 10% drop-off, Murray's offense is simply not good enough to make up for that, you know, for that 10% drop-off in return. Otherwise, he, you know, he beats, that's why he's never had ever beaten him, because he could return. But yeah, it's a fascinating thing when you're thinking about, can I, can I do what I do best consistently? In that the the mental toughness that is required to do that is really off the charts. I mean, when you think about somebody like Djokovic, for example, just the belief he has, he's a boa constrictor, the, the belief he has in his game. And I think about it playing, you know, recreationally, the number of people who just don't have that. And it makes sense why you don't have it. You don't play enough. You're not good enough. I mean, there's plenty of reasons why you don't have it. If you're Djokovic, you've got the ability but if you're a recreational player, it's really, really important to find something that you know you... What, where do you go for your points, in other words? When I need a point, what can I do? And when you don't have that, it's what I refer to as the hell moment. 
when you're out there and you know damn well there's nothing you can do to beat this guy or you know that all of my tricks don't work here today so how do i win and if you don't have an answer and if you don't figure out an answer you're not going to get the answer and i remember one time when i played my first 4-0 match i was filling in i was a three five i think i was a three five or a three oh at the time i hadn't even gotten elevated i'm like i'm gonna go up there and play and i played this guy and he was i think we played in enfield and you could tell he had better strokes you could tell you know that okay if i could get a serve in you know i got a big serve okay that could work um i was athletic i didn't really have strokes but i could run around and make things happen right just one more ball get the ball and just make them do something and it was so obvious that i was so completely overmatched in terms of watching two tennis players and yet here i am two points in the match i'm like how did that happen just because you keep playing you just play you just keep playing and that's that Nadal thing. You just keep playing. And before you know it, you may find yourself in a position you had no business being in. But right there, that was an example. And I remember this guy played, I remember him very, very well. He missed a shot. He couldn't let shots go. The anger, the rage, the histrionics. And I'm like, dude, you should be beating me. And all you have to do is just, like whenever I play someone that I believe is a lesser player, I always tell myself, calm the hell down, you're the better player. Play. You're the better player. Play. Eventually, you're going to win this match. And if you don't win it 6-2 like you think you should, and you still win it 7-6, you still won. Maybe it's not your day to win 6-2. But make sure you don't give it away simply because you think you're better and you're not better that day. Glad you brought up the better player thing. I want to get your perspective, Howard, on some of what Nick Kyrgios said in his post-final press conference. Mm-hmm. Because he, you know, you earlier brought up the the importance of self belief, and in that, you know, Nick talked about a couple of aspects of self belief that are very important to elite mental toughness. You know, one of them being the notion that he he belonged there, that his game belongs. In a, in, a, in a Grand Slam final. He also referenced the fact that he had beaten Novak in the past, granted in two out of three set matches, very different, but that also fueled his, his belief. But what he didn't reflect was something that Djokovic actually said after his 2019 final against Federer, when he was down 40-15, no, Federer's no. got two match points, right? And Djokovic talked about in that press conference how he knew he had doubts about it, but he said, okay, you deserve to be here and you're the better player. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes we hear things like that, Howard, and like, oh, there's that maybe twinge of arrogance. But is that maybe necessary when it comes to self-belief at that elite level? What do you think? It's, it's essential at every level, but especially at that level because the margins are non-existent. One of my favorite things about watching tennis josh are you asleep or did you freeze i think i froze i'll fix that <laughs> keep going, keep going. <laughs> i was gonna say i bored you to death um no i was gonna say that the thing that i i really appreciate when you watch a tennis match or when you follow you go back and look at the stats of damn near every professional tennis match the points are within four or five ten points 
very rarely do you see a match where the it's 10 plus very rarely even if you watch a 6162 match total points you know 86 to 77 nine points nine points over 16 games i mean that's huge so during that you know knowing that those are how tight the margins are you have to know like i always refer to it as the it's a game of thirds right when you try to build your game you want to play a third of your games against people you're better than a third of the games against people you're even with and a third of the people that are better than you and because they all create different challenges when you're playing the third of the guys who are way better than you then you know everything's got to be on point for you to even have a chance to win a couple games you don't want to get embarrassed when you play even you know you have no advantage but neither neither do they neither do they and when you play the lesser guys then you're playing how do i play as a front runner am i gonna screw around and make this a tough match or am i gonna be all business am i gonna go handle my business and get out of here the way i'm supposed to how am i gonna handle these three and there are a lot of people out there who don't do all three very well they're different mental challenges and to your point about knowing that you're the better player at that level when you're in Novak's position whether you're talking about that final 2019 whether you're talking about 2011 where he's down 40 15 he's down 5-2 in the fifth or whether you're thinking about I think it was the 2015 final US Open where Federer goes four for 23 on break points these are the margins you know and if you're Roger you're like you weren't the better player I I gave this to you but if you're if you're Djokovic you're like no I'm the better player and eventually that came through which is why you couldn't convert those break points and so you do have to have that level of belief up there I think it's a different challenge because everybody's so good it doesn't take much like once again it doesn't take a whole lot if you're going to you know watch a, a five set match between two guys what is really the difference between these two players what i do find fascinating about that level is when that better player is clearly the better player and they have a reserve that even you top 10 player don't have like you watch the djokovic center match and all of a sudden he's just got another gear and you can't touch it in the next three sets go by in a blink and they're not even competitive and part of that is the dual effect is what I always tell myself about the dual effect when I'm you know, when I'm playing a, a match and I'm like don't forget the dual effect you know you go win a set that you're supposed to win or that you're not supposed to win one you're gonna let down a little bit because you did something you didn't think you could do and they're gonna raise their level because you had no business beating them and that's what happens with Djokovic every time Djokovic that's why he could lose a first set and not be that concerned because he knows you know that okay there's more here for me i can play way better than this and he can do it whereas sometimes these guys who win the first two sets or they win a set they had to work at 140 percent to get 100 percent result and you cannot sustain that and i think that that was where i thought that where i thought kyrios had a decent shot was if he could maintain his 
his serve level, which he couldn't, but if he could maintain his serve level, now you've got to get a set 7-6. But if you give up an early break, it's over. You're done because Djokovic is just going to stay on it. He's going to stay on what he does with the belief that what he does is better than what you do. And that's exactly what happened. You could see that Kyrgios's serve, his offensive level dropped. All of a sudden, all those easy love games that he was getting on serve in the first set, suddenly he's 30-40. He's losing the first point of every set. And that starts to weigh on you. And then now you're going, okay, do I have a reserve to match this? And the answer was no. I'm glad that, that you brought up that idea of you know small margins. And this, that's something we've certainly talked about a lot on this show and, and actually brought up some statistics from um, Craig O'Shaughnessy, who has oh, talked my about... My boy, Craig. <laughs> he's talked Craig. about, yeah, even you know even the best players in the world, the Djokovic's, the Serena's, you know. Um, Have you had he, him on the pod? We haven't. We haven't. We, we've definitely referred to him, though. Um, but uh, no, he's... You know, how even the best in the world win somewhere around 55% of their points over time. Yeah. And it just shows, you know, you're going to lose almost half of your points or right around half of your points in a given match, in a given season, in a career. So you better have a system for how you handle it. You better, you know, know, you know, okay, how can I reset? How can I not let that point, that last point or that last game or, or set? impact me and, and hold me back from doing what I, I know I'm I'm capable to do here. So I'm, I'm really, really glad that you brought up that, that concept. 100% right. And I am a strange player because I'm left-handed, but I play tennis right-handed. So I'm I'm naturally left-handed, but for some reason I play tennis. I'm stupid, right? I mean, I just <laughs> stay, stay lefty. Away, yeah. I'm the anti-Rafa, right? No, <laughs> dummy, play lefty. And, um, but I also shoot a basketball right hand. It's very, it's a very weird setup. It's, if it requires finesse, I'm left-handed. If it requires power, I'm right-handed. Like I throw right-handed. And I think probably, probably part of the reason was probably because when I was a kid, we only had righty gloves. So you put the glove on your left hand and you throw right-handed. We didn't, nobody had a lefty glove. And so, um, and what was weird was like putting it on your hand, you realize this doesn't fit me right, but you had no choice. So you just sort of learned how to do it. So Craig and I are at the dog, the dog and fox at Wimbledon, at the bar right up in the village. And we're drinking and eating burgers one day. And I don't remember what year it was, but um, might have been 16. And um, that was the year Murray beat Ronich, right? I think it was 16. And um, and he's telling me, and I'm just telling him about my weirdness as a player. And, and I was telling him how I really felt comfortable. He's like, well, what are you trying to do? And he was like breaking down the, the court in the A, B, C, D lanes. And he's like, here's what you're trying to where you're trying to go on court. It was this amazing free lesson from, you know, a, a, a great, great analytical thinker. And, um, and I was telling him how one of the things I was trying to do was, you know, I'm trying to get a ball in this A lane so I can go back up the line because that's the shot I feel more comfortable with, the backhand up the line. He's like, no, 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 no. He's like, no matter how good your backhand is, and I'm talking pros, and he says, no matter how good, even Novak, and he was coaching Novak at the time, um, he's like, even Novak, you lose 44% of your points on your backhand. No matter how good your backhand is, it's a forehand game. Don't ever forget that. Especially in the men's game. Especially in the men's game. And that's, and that's what I said to him because we were talking about how many of the women don't move around their backhand, how they, they'll play. The only guy on the men's side who does that is Medvedev. He'll play whatever shot you give him. 
You give him a backhand, he'll even, I mean, Djokovic goes to the forehand. He's a forehand hitter. He's just got a great backhand. Medvedev will hit whatever shot you give him. He doesn't, he doesn't run around. He just hits whatever you give him. On the women's side, they will do the same, but they will favor the backhand often. And every time I see that, I always think about that. Like when I watched the Halep match, I was thinking that. I'm like, you know, she was in the same position. And one of the reasons why she became a champion was she started to do a little bit more forehand work. She was starting to lean more into the forehand. It is an offensive game. It's a, it's a serve for it's a serve dominant offensive forehand game. And that was one of the big things that helped me because I was like, your forehand, my forehand's terrible. I'm like, you need to work on your forehand. And so I'm sitting there with, you know, with Mike Kalendo and Matt Lytle over and every, every coach in town and Art Carrington and Lex and the rest of them. I'm like, somebody please fix this thing because I'm thinking about what Craig was telling me. And it's true from a confidence standpoint. Hitting a big forehand and getting control of the point changes your life. Hitting a good backhand makes you feel good, but you know that it's nowhere near the same as stepping into the court going forward just from a kinetic standpoint. So you know in terms of how you approach the game when you're in the middle of competing, what the difference is, how it feels when you know you can step forward in and you can gain control. It's a totally different feeling as a player. And so that's one of the things when you're thinking about when you're watching a guy like a curio, so you're watching somebody like an Isner, big serve, big forehand player, how, you know, the mental challenge in facing guys like that, because they're essentially here to shove the ball down your throat. And that type of, of pressure, it's a very different pressure than a Djokovic-type pressure, although Novak can do the same thing. I mean, if he needs to, he can just, I mean, his forehand is amazing. So it really is a sort of thing where you are learning um, mentally, one, to find out what do I need and what is this person trying to do to me? Yeah, and I think that brings in sort of the fighting aspect of tennis, right? I often refer to it as a fighting sport or a combat sport. No, it is. Yeah, it's, 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 it's as Lupica used to refer to it as it's 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 boxing without the punches. Yeah, and I think Bud Collins called it boxing without bloodshed. Although I mean, he may not have yeah. been the first to have said that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I like what you're saying about the players because you know I think each one of them has a very strong identity of how they fight, mm-hmm. how they, and we've talked about this on this podcast a lot. Is really your primary goal when you go out on the court is to break your opponent mentally. Yeah. Each of them does that in a different way by making them, you know, making the opponent mentally uncomfortable. The thing I like about Novak is he has a very clear decision framework about when he hits what shots. Yes. And he's able to maintain that discipline under stress. And that's something that a lot of players are not able to do. When they start to feel some pressure and some stress, they lose the discipline. The risk factor begins to go up. They begin to actually lose the match. Which is something that maybe a guy like Djokovic is doing to them. Or, you know, an Isner might be doing it to you by exerting such pressure. What's your perspective on, you know, people losing matches and winning matches in this fighting piece? It's huge. It's huge. And it reminds me of when I was at Wimbledon one time and I was walking around the court with with Mary Carrillo and and Mike Lupica. We were walking around the grounds and he was telling me about the the first time Jimmy Connors saw Nadal play and... And Connor said to Lupica, the guy plays like he's broke, right? I mean, when you, 
when, when a guy is coming to beat you, when you step on the court, you know if somebody's all business. Okay, now what are you going to do? I mean, you talk about beating a guy before they step on the court. What are you doing when this player across from you is trying to kick, you know, he's really trying to take you out. Are you up for that challenge? Are you ready to bring that same mental energy? Are you like, you know, I'm really not that into it. You're taking this way more seriously than I want to. And you're losing right then and there. It is also true that it's not just how you lose in the fight. I mean, that, that you're losing in the fight, it's how you're losing. Are you losing because this person is simply better than you and has more touch and has more variety, can just do things more consistently? Or are you losing because you're losing that mental battle? You've forgotten what you do. You don't have any confidence in what you're doing. You don't have enough confidence in what you're doing. Maybe you're not having enough successes to believe in what you're doing. And now you're constantly trying to change and switch on the fly. So it's very, very true that when you watch someone like Novak, and I always say this about the top guys, you know, big three, big four, what have you, that when you look at those guys, I remember Sangha was saying one day at, I don't remember where we were, I think it might have been the French, I remember where we were, and he just said, those guys are just better. They're just better. And he just finished it. He's like, what do you want me to say? They're just better than the rest of us. And, um, and I had trouble, I had trouble with that because he, he might be right, but also why? You guys are all pretty much at the same physical peak. Why are those guys just better? And when you watch them, when you watch Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, especially Nadal, Djokovic, because Fed's not here now, but you watch these guys the last, you know, couple of tournaments, um, the last two majors, and for Nadal, the last three majors, they do everything well. They do everything well. And one of my favorite guys is David Ferrer. He's my favorite player to watch. Love Ferrer. You want to talk about a guy who could control with a forehand at five nine. He's controlling with the forehand. All footwork. Gorgeous, gorgeous player to watch. And nobody would call him an elegant player, but he's gorgeous to watch because of that footwork. Davidenko, same, same concept. Del Potro obviously controls everything with the forehand and never got credit for his footwork because he was so powerful. He was so big, but his footwork is impeccable. How else do you control with your forehand all the time? And he had the lowest percentage of backhands hit on the tour for years. And so... To me, one of the things that you're really trying to accomplish in that fight, you're right, you're trying to break the spirit, you're trying to break the will, you're trying to overcome whatever it is that, that, is, that you're facing. But what you're really doing to me in that fight is you're, you're trying to match and exceed intensity. I mean, that's what, because to me, in, in matches... You know who wants to win more. And it's kind of obvious. It's not that complicated. There are a lot of times when you play people and you know how much they want to win this match. And at the pro level, at the, at the elite level, that happens before you even get on the court. I mean, Joe Wilfried Sanga wins a major if he had a backhand. There's no question in my mind if he had a backhand. Now, Ferrer's a little different because he's just not big enough. He doesn't bring enough on the serve. You know, the game has gotten past. I mean, the six-footers, you know, you haven't had, we haven't had a six-foot and under champion or, or under six-foot champion since Hewitt. So it's 20 years. 
So those guys are going to have a re... And only two of them have made the final. You know, you, you had uh, Nishikori in 2014 and Ferrer in 2013. And so those guys have a more difficult challenge. But if you're going to go in today's game against those guys, you know, are you putting in what they're putting in? In terms of, you know, in terms of working on all the shots. Like, it always fascinates me how little professional players work on their serve. There's just no time. And so, to me, if you're a guy on Monfils and you're drinking a Coke on the sidelines during the French Open, you better not go five sets today, pal. And so, like, there is something to be said for just the basic, the basic training that goes into it. And the work and the willpower and the thing, like when we started this conversation, you immediately started talking about Nadal. If you watch Rafa Nadal's strokes in 2005 to 2007 against his strokes now, he's an exceedingly better tennis player now than he was then. By far better tennis player. Knows how to flatten out a ball offensively. Knows how to cut through the court. Knows how to cut through on the backhand. Has all other things. Not as young, obviously. But in terms of knowing how to play tennis, today's Nadal is better than that Nadal. And that Nadal could play all night. It's I that is certainly true. And I've I, I actually recently watched watched some of those highlights um, from, you know, when he was just getting on tour and um, some of those early finals. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, would love to shift gears a little bit and and get get your perspective on something that we we don't talk too too much about on this show but it's certainly over the last few years has really been talked about more and more in tennis and in the the general uh, generally in sports and that's mental health and yep. we, we we've seen examples in tennis with Naomi Osaka um, and some others who had Nick Kyrgios recently as well um, who've spoken out about you know mental health and really the importance of it. And we've seen other examples, whether it's Simone Biles, whether it's mm -hmm. Kevin mm -hmm. Love, DeMar DeRozan. Um, it, from, from your experience, um, you know, being around um, professional sports for, for a long time, uh, how, how have you seen that, that shift? And, and where do you, do you feel like things are, are heading um, within, within that, within mental health and, and sports? Well, I think it's important um, that the players have more agency and i think we're starting to see that and i think it's important especially in a sport like tennis where it's the loneliest sport in the world and they argue about whether or not you're coaching you can even talk to anybody <laughs> this is the root of the game you are supposed to live on the island and solve your own issues you don't have teammates and on top of not having teammates you don't even have friends in a lot of ways because you've been on the road and doing this high performance stuff since you were seven or eight years old so you don't even have a, you know, you don't have schoolwork the way, which is why going to college is kind of important to remember that you are a full whole person. You know, those kids remind me of like the Olympians where they're all, you know, or child actors. They're burnt out by the time they're 20, 22 years old. They've, they've been doing this so long at such an intense level that eventually it's all going to come crashing down, that you just don't have enough balance. You don't have enough. There's not enough foundation in your life to not crash. And in the case of Osaka, there's obviously the different media components that come to it. There's a lot of the story that goes with it. I just felt watching her, I was like, I don't think she knows how to lose. I, I think that here's somebody who's an elite athlete who's got four majors who still doesn't know how to lose, doesn't know how to handle losing. And 
there's a reason why all of this conversation has taken place on her two worst surfaces. Because she doesn't walk in there believing she can win. She doesn't walk in there feeling confident that what she does is going to be enough to succeed. She's a one-surface player. And obviously that one surface is a pretty damn good surface for her. But when I was watching all of the Sturm and Drang about the, you know, the back and forth with the, with tennis, with the French Tennis uh, Federation and with the majors and everything else and with the media and what we do against what she does and her documentary and the whole thing, my immediate conclusion was here is someone who simply has not understood this piece of the world yet, which I always find fascinating because we, anyone who's an athlete, we lose all the time. I mean, losing is one of the first things that you have to learn how to navigate if you're going to ever step on the court, whether you're five years old or 15 or whether you play 3-0, 3-5 or the U.S. Open. It is, it is as much of a part of the game as winning. It's the exact opposite side of it. And so, so yes, when you're talking about the, the gap between how we, we navigate the mental health piece of it and the physical piece, that's enormous. You know, if you have a broken arm, you, you, you know, everyone has sympathy for you. If you miss a free throw, you're weak. And the question has always been, as we dig into this, the question has been, how much, how much is the game responsible for helping you win? How much responsibility does the game have to help you win? And you saw Venus and Serena, they said it very shadily, but said it, said it anyway. Some people aren't thick. I'm thick. That's Serena talking. And what she's really saying is, I can handle all of this. And me handling all of this is part of the challenge. I don't want it any other way. For me to be a champion, I got to win seven matches. I also have to beat everything else around me during trying to win those seven matches. I don't need you to roll out the red carpet and give me the rose petals on the way to the bathtub. I don't need any of that. This is part of the fight. Now, there's a new generation of people that are coming up who don't believe that, that this isn't part of the fight, that part of the fight, that the fight is on the, is on the court, and it's the responsibility of the tournaments and of the world to create as fair an environment, or not even fair, but as, as conducive an environment for me to be at my peak. There are other people, like Roger, Roger will tell you, no coaching. Part of being a tennis player is you figuring it out between those lines, between sets one and set five. And so all of these mental health questions all come into play. I mean, what is a timeout other than a mental health break? I mean, if you could have a timeout, you know, you know, the, the Celtics are on a 10-0 run, timeout, bucks. What's happening right there? Let's reset. Everybody, let's take a little mental break here. Let's get back to what we do. And if you start adding that, I mean, what is the, you know, watching Davis Cup or something, they're, converse, you know, they're conversing with the coaches all the time. Why? Because you're trying to reset mentally. And unlike any other sport, tennis does not allow that. Tennis forces you to reset mentally on your own. So the mental health challenge in tennis is an extremely different challenge than in any other sport. 
I mean, you don't even have a caddy that you can just sit and talk to. It's like one of my favorite things was when I was at, I was at Wimbledon. I think I was on court two. Court two. And Sanga was struggling and he looked at a fan. And he says, what shot should I play next? Right. And everyone started laughing. But it was really sort of hilarious because he was like, really, what shot should I play next? I don't know. You do it. Right. And that was, you know, whenever you see those moments in tennis, people laugh because it's kind of cute and you're connecting with the fans. But there is a purpose to that. You know, what he's really saying is, you know, I, I need to reset here. Yeah, so true. And um, I'm, I'm really glad that uh, you were able to give your perspective on that. I know we're up against time. So I wanted to thank you, no, Howard. For... I mean, I'm good if you want to go a little longer. Sure. Okay. Because, uh, I, you know, I wanted to get into something about, well, first of all, I might be pushing the boundaries of your your memory here, Howard, I, I might be a little bit older than you are, but your description of Naomi Osaka reminded me of Bjorn Borg's exit from the game. Because mm-hmm. you talk about somebody really sort yep. of collapsing from that. But um, the other piece is like this idea of perspective, this idea of loss. You know, one of my favorite books is um, The Fighter's Mind by Sam Sheridan. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a chapter about Manny Pacquiao and his, and his trainer, Freddie Roach, and how Manny was really good at accepting loss as a growth opportunity, where Freddie in his own career couldn't. Um, and then there's another chapter about Andre Ward, um, who won a gold medal mm-hmm. in the 2004 Olympics, right? And his, his trainer, Virgil Hunter, talked about the successful fighters are the ones who develop perspective at an early age. And something Josh and I like to talk about a lot is – helping young players develop really their own philosophy of excellence, which in, you know is also engaging a lot of perspective and a lot of wisdom. How do you see that playing out in, you know, in your observations of, of elite sport? Yeah, I think that it's a huge piece of it in that I see it play out usually when we're talking about burnout. Um, you talk to Bill Parcells, and one of the things Parcells used to talk about all the time was that the the – the losing hurt more than the winning healed. And that's why you'd see Parcells leave. He'd take a break every couple of years. He'd quit. He needed, he was falling apart. And that's a real thing. And I remember being in the Yankee clubhouse one day and talking to David Justice. And I remember, you know, he was all pissed off about something one day. We were having this great conversation. And I said to him, you know, I would argue that 95 to 98% of the interactions that you've had in your career have been overwhelmingly positive. The fans cheer you. Even if 5,000 fans boo you, 55,000 fans are cheering you. And he said, yeah, that is true. But we expect success. We don't expect Failure. We don't expect booing. We expect you to say nice job because I do a nice job. I expect to get a hit because I'm a hitter. And so it does require a fair amount of strategy and understanding to learn how to deal with that other piece of it. Because that other piece of it, we've always been told that that other piece of it is unacceptable. Losing is not an option. We've, we've never been told losing is also part of the game. It was like when I was in the Yankee clubhouse and Jeter would say, well, if we don't win the World Series, the season was a failure. Was it? I used to hate when he said that. It used to drive me crazy. 
a, you know, the great, late, great Roger Angel wrote in one of his books that winning is actually the irregularity. Winning is actually, you know, losing is the common na piece of nature in life. You've got 30 baseball teams in this one World Series winner. Are they, all the 20, other 29, are they all losers? Even if they won 15 more games this year than they did last year and they overachieved or they did more than they... But all of these things feel like loser's words. They, that's that participation trophy moral victory thing. And we need to find ways to overcome that. We need to find ways to figure that out because even at the pro level, they haven't quite figured it out either. Which is why it's such a big story when a professional athlete says, you know what, I'm not doing well. And why we look at them like, you know, soft, you know, that Mamba mentality bullshit that I hate so much, you know. You're going to tell me that even Kobe Bryant wasn't ever vulnerable at, th at times? He was. And so it's, it's, we have sold total victory at all costs as the baseline. That cannot be the baseline. Very few people, nobody, not Michael Jordan, not Kobe Bryant, not Roger Federer, not, nobody succeeds in that mindset. They don't succeed in that model. And so I think it's really, really valuable that you have athletes now who are trying to reshape that, that you have athletes who are trying to recreate what that structure looks like. That when Simone Biles says, look, I'm getting the twisties, which is a way of, which is to me, you know, she's putting her life in danger for that sport. And if you go up in the air and have no idea, you could break your neck, you could kill yourself. And the number of people who came down on her and told her she was not mentally tough or she was letting down her country, those people need to go. Because this is not, this is very, very dangerous. And what it does is it removes the beating heart from the game. They're not machines. They're not robots. They actually need to process. I remember I was at the 2013 Wimbledon final. And I was sitting in the green room. I didn't go. I wasn't. I didn't go for the first set. I went in the second set. Um, and so I'm in the green room, watching on TV, um, just a few feet away. And there is Sabine Lisicki, and she's crying against Bartoli. I mean, the moment just completely and totally overwhelmed her. Which I guess you could understand. You're in a Wimbledon final, and she just couldn't handle it. And a couple of folks at the green room, who I will not name just killed her. Is she crying? Laughing at her. Because she was showing weakness. She was not showing, she was not embracing the championship moment. And I had an amazing amount of compassion for her. I mean, we've all been out there somewhere. I mean, you put me out there in a tennis court in front of 20,000 people, I wouldn't remember my name. I, you know, who are you? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it would just be too much. You know, what city are you born in? I don't know, right? And so to, to be expected to perform at that level, it goes back to what you were saying earlier. I think about a guy like Shapovalov in that position where you just lose sight of everything and all of a sudden you're just spraying the ball all over the place. You've, you've lost all sense of the mission of, of what you're supposed to be doing out there. And that's the, you know, that when you talk to professional athletes about this, you have to remember that we have also baked this piece of it into the legend. Like your legend grows by being able to overcome. 
all the mental challenges in front of you, that mental toughness that you, you know, you hit those two free throws and you didn't miss one of them or that, you know, you were able to perform at a, at, at a level that other people, then that's part of the challenge. And I think one of the great questions taking place in sports right now is, should it be part of the challenge or how much should it be? How much compassion? How do we balance that? Um, it's not an easy question. Certainly, certainly. And I, I think, you know, on, on the positive side, it's, you know, it, we, we've finally reached that point, you know, within um, D1 sports and, you know, professional sports where just about every team now has has an individual who's doing mental performance work, you know, mm -hmm. which is, you know, what, the type of work that Brian and I do and what really what we talk about on this podcast. And also, you know, people also support on the mental health side. And I think that's, oh, that's right. That, that's critical. And, it, you know, Yes, there still is stigma at times, but that's, I think that that certainly has lessened over the years and having, you know, high profile athletes speak out about it I, I, is helping move that, yeah. that conversation in the right yeah. direction. And to do it without, and to do it without attaching weakness to it. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's mental, maybe it's weakness. I mean, it's something, I mean, it, it's, if, if you're going to, if you're going to take Novak Djokovic and add to his legend that his mental toughness, his ability to come back from 40-15, not just play and win, but this is who he is, that this is something that he has. You know, they were saying on TV, the clutch gene or whatever you want to call it, he's got this thing. Then if you don't have it, then there's something wrong with you. I mean, that's how it's approached. That, you know, I remember when I was learning how to play, you know, one of the things that I am the master at was the 30 love double fault. What's that all about? Why is that the pattern? Why do I, you know? And I'm trying, you know, you're trying to assess this. Is it your mechanics? It's not your mechanics because you're not doing it at 40-15 or at love 40. It's that particular point that's up here that you don't want to, you know, when they teach you the, the game of twos, you got to win two points. You never want to lose a point or you want to win, you know, multiple points. Losing that point takes away that streak. Now it's 30-15. And so you're really tight now and you're not flowing. How do you how do you transition your mind into using that as an advantage? Hey, I'm up two points. I'm two points from the game. How do you play those mental gymnastics to figure out how to turn these things into an asset? Whenever you talk to any athlete, they will tell you what were your ticks. If you just ask them, what was this? What was the play or the scenario that you always had to work on? Somebody will say, oh, it's a ball to my left, or somebody will say, you know, thirty love double fault, or you know, not being able to, you know, for some reason I can hit the tee, but I can't go out wide or whatever. There's always something that players can't do. And it, invariably at some point, if you talk to them long enough, it does come back to the mental side. It comes back to something in them that they need to overcome in order, in order to overcome this. Novak Djokovic had more, more double faults than aces in 2010. That's not mechanics necessarily. It's also the belief. And then you add the two together, you, you know, you bring in Becker and all of a sudden now he's got one of the greatest serves in history. Yeah, I think it's, it's difficult to separate sometimes when we're watching players versus what they are experiencing because they're two different things. And very totally. often coaches and fans and observers will project what they would have done onto this player, but they are not that player. Yeah. No, not only are they not that player, but anytime I hear somebody say, "I could," no, you couldn't have. I could have made that play. No, you really couldn't have. Yeah. And then you take them to a match and you sit them down low, and they're like, "Holy!" Sh you know, like the speed of this game. You know, tennis is one of the. You know, basketball is not an optical illusion. You watch a basketball player, and we all know we can't do what they do. 
but a lot of people think they can do what tennis players can do and they can't. I mean, the most amazing thing when I first started learning how to play and then when I started covering it full time and you were actually there, you're sitting there at the bull ring in the French Open and you're 15 feet away from, you know, from a pro player, from Sloane Stevens or whoever was playing at that, that match. Um, the speed of it all, the biggest optical illusion in tennis is that players are moving when they hit the ball. They're by the, unless they are being stretched, virtually every rally shot, they are stationary. It's incredible. You go out there and watch me play. I'm running for my life on a rally ball because they are so gifted at what they do. And you watch them at a certain level and you realize that the game that they're playing, even when they warm up with another pro, the game they're playing is so totally different because it becomes, you could make an argument that at that level, it becomes nothing but mental because they're all at this super level. I mean, somebody may have a better backhand or better forehand or whatever, but at the end of the day, they're at such a high level that the difference maker is going to be who can actually execute what they do, you know, enough. It goes back to what they were saying before about, you know, with, with Murray and Jokic, repeatability. How many times can you repeat this stroke? And those two are like the masters at it. And then you look at somebody like a Kyrgios or a, you know, or even a Fanini who's actually much better than he gets credit for, or somebody like Shapovalov who isn't, you realize that ability to repeat what you're doing over and over and over again is not just practice, but a huge barometer of, of, of mental toughness and mental stability that you can just keep doing this regardless of the circumstance. The reason I brought up your, or, or the so distinction between the watcher and the experiencer is because of what you said happened in that green room and laughing at others. And I think compassion is really the right approach there because, you know, we, the person watching, we don't know what her mental experience or emotional experience mm, is right. there. And she's doing the best she can in that moment based on who she is. She isn't us. Maybe, yes, so, so-and-so could be doing better in that situation, but she's not you. She's her. Well, that's and the it, Reggie A-Rod uh, exactly. analogy. I remember talking to Billy Bean about this, the same thing, when he would talk about Billy and, and uh, his old roommate, Lenny Dykstra. And he was like, I was too smart to play baseball because I'm actually thinking about every single thing. I'm thinking about my elbows. I'm thinking about my mechanics. I'm thinking about my batting average. I'm thinking, because Lenny just went up there and hit. Lenny wasn't thinking about any of that stuff. Lenny's mind was clear. Ball, bat, make contact. That's it. And Billy, you know, you talk to Billy Bean to this day and he'll tell you, my brain got in the way of every bat in my life. I was too busy thinking about thinking. And I said, but I thought baseball was a thinking man's game. He goes, not when you're hitting. You know, he says, when you're in the field, you got to think about where to throw in this, you know, in all those scenarios. But when you're hitting, you need to be completely focused in on what you're doing. The ability to do that. When I was talking to Hank Aaron, when I was working on the, the Hank Aaron book years ago, I remember asking him about his consistency and how were you able to do this? And this is one thing you and I and the, the three of us haven't spoken about. And that is the distraction at home. And I said, well, Henry, I mean, I said, you went through a divorce right during your career. Still hit 300. And he said, well, my attitude had always been, don't bring the ballpark home and don't bring home to the ballpark. 
And I said, well, that sounds really easy. You know, but if your life is falling apart at home, how do you get back to work? And so to your point, we don't know what was going on with Sabine Lasicki. Maybe your mom was sick. I don't know. Who knows what was going on? And so all of the different things that the watcher is watching is actually not what, is the, ex what the experience is of the person we're watching. We have no idea what they're going through. I think that's that's a very important message and that, you know, we all need to we've talked about this this recently, but we all need to, you know, be have empathy. Have empathy yeah. for what people are going through, people are, are struggling. You know, we don't we don't see what's behind the scenes, as as you said. And um and, and also that ability to be able to separate things, right? Be able to separate what's going on in life, what you know, and okay. Where the match is starting, I need to be able to lock in. I need to be able to focus and play this match and focus on myself and you know who's on the other side of the net for me. It actually reminded me of you know when you were saying um, oh, you know overthinking too much. I, I think it's the same thing in tennis where if somebody's thinking too much about their technique, their their elbow mm -hmm. and their shoulder and their footwork and their follow through and all of these things, you know you can focus on watching the ball right? Yeah. Doing the, there's a drill bounce hit that I used to use a lot when I was coaching on court. That's, you know, from the inner game of tennis from Tim Galloway that, mm -hmm. that, that quiets a lot of that. Yeah. And it's, you know, how can we, I think that's often the, the struggle. How can we get out of our own heads? Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And, and the simplicity of it. And that, and that is the reason why when you look at, you know, great players or average players or whomever, when you're trying to figure out what to do, you always try to find a baseline of where your comfort is. Like, how can I get to a place? And that's why when you talk about guys being in lockdown mode or whatever you want to call it, where they just start finding that rhythm. So now they're starting to get to a place of confidence. How do I start getting out of this space, this headspace that I'm in right now? You know, I mean, and it's, it, is, it is really a fascinating place because you don't know why you're watching the first two sets and the guy looks lost and all of a sudden they just pour it back on. How does that, how do those resets take place? And you're watching people smash their rackets and lose their minds. And how did that happen? And, or they just don't show up that day or whatever, you know, whatever it is, it's a, it's a fascinating um, exercise. And it's more so in tennis than the other sports, because you have to lock in. You're only locked in on two people. So it's it's not like you're you know you're watching the offensive line and then you're looking at the quarterback and you're looking at the wide receivers you're you know it's one on one it's you versus me. So Howard, let's uh, just wrap up. Maybe talk a little bit about what you're working on these days. Are there any tennis projects coming? I am down finally going to go back to the U.S. Open. I haven't been since seventeen or eighteen, I think. I think the last open I did, I didn't go to the to to nineteen. I don't remember the last open I was at. I think, I think it it was because I wasn't there when 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 Nadal beat Nadal Anderson might have been the last one. I think that was what twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. And so, or was that yeah? And then Djokovic was twenty seventeen. He beat Del Potro. Or vice versa. Anyway, it's been a long time, right? It was one of those years, and so I'm looking forward to going back. I'm looking forward to um, to 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 seeing uh, everybody and um, and to writing about this period. I mean, it's been such an interesting period that is now finally coming to an end. I always say you protect your own time, and my time is coming to an end. The 
Ferrer is gone and Song is gone and Nadal is 36 and Fed is 40, 41. And, um, and so it's going to be interesting for me to find out tennis wise where I fit because I'm very concerned about the game right now. I think the game is getting further and further out of balance as the players get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I like returners and I still say that if, you know, people never say that Roger Federer was a great returner, but he still broke at 25% when he was winning his majors. That's pretty damn good. And right now, this big serve, big forehand, 7-6-7-6 game, I don't love it. And so it'll be interesting for me to get back out there and to see where, if there are any lanes where I, I find it interesting, because I don't find the um, big man tennis game to be that interesting, but that's exactly where it's heading. Yeah, which is sort of reminiscent of, as you said earlier, it's kind of the 90s and the bad mm -hmm. grass and, and things like that. So, well, perhaps we'll be able to catch up in person at the U.S. Open. be great to, uh, to meet you. And um, But I want to extend my, my great thanks for coming on today and speaking with, with me and Josh. And uh, it was an absolute pleasure. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Call anytime. Well, that was an awesome conversation. And I think uh, th there were there were a few big takeaways that I had. I mean, I really did enjoy our discussion on mental health. Um, certainly not something that we would typically discuss on this podcast, but um, I think he brought a unique perspective and I, I was really curious to, to hear what he was going to say there. Um, where, you know, I think especially over these last few years in tennis and in other sports really has gained so much aware. There's been so much awareness around mental health and athlete, you know, top athletes have spoken out. And that, that certainly has been the case in, in tennis. So I enjoyed that, that part of our conversation. And then I think, you know, I think my biggest takeaway was really that discussion about, you know, some of the, the elite performers in tennis, whether they be Djokovic or Nadal or Federer or Serena or, you know, some others that have really stayed at the top for a long time. And I think it, it really comes down to, you know, being the better player, but also that self-belief piece and, uh, you know, also how the margins are often really small, right? We've talked a lot about, you know, some of the statistics Craig O'Shaughnessy has brought up and we discussed that in this episode and really how, you know, with such small margins, it's about doing the little things right about using your mental skills in between points about, you know, making sure that you're prepared in the best possible way. And ultimately that can be the difference between winning that 55% of points or winning 50 or 51%. Um, and, you know, really appreciated his perspective on just being the better player and really what, what separates some of these really elite players from the rest of the pack. And I think that self-belief and knowing you're the better player or feeling you're the better player, uh, that really feeds into the part that I liked, which was that in tennis, you have to finish. And um, you know, we made this parallel during the conversation, tennis and baseball. There's no clock there. So, you, you know, in baseball, you have to get the last out. In tennis, you have to close out the match. You have to win that last point. And that requires that level of self-belief. And um, you know, I think... Howard's experience covering baseball and covering tennis has helped him bring that parallel between the two sports. And I think that's something that he um, really admires about the, you know, how one wins in those two sports. So um, we've, we've talked a lot about that, Josh, the ability to close out sets, the ability to close out matches. Of course, there are some times where maybe if it's an indoor match and the clock is, is, you know, becomes a factor there. 
but re, you know normally you can't just coast those last couple of games into the victory. You must close it out. You must finish it off. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we have as tennis players versus sports in which there is a clock and, and maybe you can just kind of protect your lead. And that's really not something one can do effectively in tennis, even though sometimes we do get into a protect the lead mode. And and that often leads to more problems than, uh, than solutions. But um, I thought that was a really cool conversation, part of the conversation and a cool parallel between between the two sports. So like you, I, I really enjoyed that and I hope everyone else did as well. So that's our show for today. Many thanks to our guest, Howard Bryant, and thank you for listening. For more on today's episode, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for me and Josh, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes, and you can check us out on Instagram. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.